This is NPR News, and I'm Angela Davis. So glad to have you join us today. Well, this hour, I want to share some stories from NPR News about Black history in Minnesota. My colleague Brant Williams is here with me in the studio. He is the editor of the Race, Class, and Communities team, and many of you know him as a long-time, long-time <laughs> old reporter here at NPR. Hi, Brant. <laughs> hey, Angela. Thanks for that intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, this morning, uh, Brant, we're going to play some of the stories from um, the NPR News North Star Journey Project. So let's mm-hmm. start with that. Describe what North Star Journey is. Right. So these, this is a collection of stories uh, about the many diverse communities in, in Minnesota. And, and we've been striving in telling these stories to move beyond some of the played out kind of tropes um, uh, about the traumas that our communities of color have faced. I mean, it's a very real reality, um, but I think our listeners and I think our communities deserve to hear a fuller telling of these types of stories, which include people who are in these communities who are working to make things better for themselves. And I've found, you know, in my, I've been a reporter for about over 30 years now. um, And one constant that I found, especially in covering uh, black communities here, is that for every problem, there are dozens of people within that community who are working to change. And they're not waiting for other people to come in and save them. Mm-hmm. And so the reporting strives to highlight that our communities of color um, throughout Minnesota and especially our indigenous communities have been working to save themselves and not waiting for others to save them. I think about it as like the history and the culture of the state and looking at how did we get to where we are today? What's right. the story behind this? And what's the, the story behind the name North Star Journey? Well, you know, we went through a couple of different iterations um, as we're trying to figure out what's the best way to describe what the the this is all about. Um, so, I mean, North Star Journey, when you think about it, it combines, of course, you know, Minnesota is the North Star state. It combines the cultural historical um, notion of uh, the North Star as a symbol of, of freedom for those who have mm-hmm. been enslaved. And Journey it, it kind of symbolizes that we're not at a destination. We're actually all still working towards this. Evolving. So, right, right, right. right. So that's all part of the name. And uh, how do you go about picking and, and finding these stories? Uh, because uh, many of these are stories I have never even heard of, of before. So how are they discovered? Right. Well, we went through a series of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, brainstorming meetings. We've done, um, just put a pitch out to all of reporters and show producers. Hey, if you had like a story idea that's been like in your notebook or on your back burner that is would involve a little bit more time to tell the story that you just haven't had because of the daily grind of, you mm-hmm. know, putting out news and stories, you know, and constantly. So uh, that's where a lot of these stories came from. These came from our reporters. I didn't, as an editor, I didn't go to every reporter and say, hey, you do a story on this, you do a story on that. Reporter said, I've got an idea for something and I think it could work. That's great when that happens. Okay, well, let's get to it. First, we're going to hear a piece about Elton Wright Trusclair. He is in his 60s and lives in Minneapolis, and he is seeking reparations from the Society of Jesus in Louisiana because the church enslaved his ancestors. So, Brent, why did you pick this story for us to to air today? Well, I'm just fascinated by... um when you have a family who can trace their history back to the arrival of their ancestors right. to America and the fact that this family knows who's responsible for enslaving them, I, I, I just, you know, when I heard the story um, pitched to me, I was like, we got to get rare. this on the air. Right. Right, right. All right. Well, let's take a listen. 
Elton Wright Trusclair grew up in the small Louisiana town of Maringouin in the 1960s during Jim Crow segregation. Wright Trusclair, who is now 64 and lives in Minneapolis, remembers serving as an altar boy in a church which kept black people on one side and white people on the other. At the time, he knew very little about his family's history, but Wright Trusclair says he had a hunch that terrible things had been done to his family maybe even at the hands of the Catholic institutions, he saw relegate black people to a lower status every Sunday morning and even in cemeteries. My grandparents raised me, but they didn't talk about that part because uh, that's how they, they raised, that's how they uh, did us, manipulated us down there. And a lot of old people didn't talk about stuff like that. In 2017, the long history between black families like his and the church became more clear to the public. That's when top clergy and officials from the Society of Jesus and Georgetown University announced their involvement in slavery, making a public apology for selling more than 270 enslaved black people to three Louisiana plantations in 1838. It revealed some of the painful secrets that Wright Trusclair's grandparents always seemed too traumatized to discuss. Several generations of Wright Trusclair's family, including his grandparents' grandparents, were enslaved by the Jesuits, and some were sold to those plantations. During the 2017 apology ceremony, Father Timothy Kosicki confessed to the church's sin of selling the enslaved people. Today, the Society of Jesus, who helped to establish Georgetown University, and whose leaders enslaved and mercilessly sold your ancestors, stands before you to say that we have greatly sinned in our thoughts and in our words, in what we have done, and in what we have failed to do. At the time of the sale, Georgetown was struggling to keep its doors open. They received $115,000 in the transaction with the plantations. Kosicki said that act violated the teachings of the church. We betrayed the very name of Jesus for whom our least society is named. But the Jesuits in Georgetown's history with slavery goes much deeper and further back than the sale it detailed in that 2017 apology. Archival documents show that the Maryland Jesuits entered the slavery business in the late 1600s and used money from the business to found Georgetown, as well as dozens of other schools. I believe that both Georgetown University and the Maryland Jesuits owe the public a much deeper, fuller accounting of their historical legacy ties to slavery. Richard Cellini is an Italian-American Georgetown alumnus who helped NPR News find Elton Wright Trusclair. Cellini founded a group called the Georgetown Memory Project, which has helped identify 10,000 descendants. He says the church needs to clearly explain that slavery was once the church's and the university's basic business model. I believe um, that both the Jesuits and the university should put a spotlight and share information about the true depth and extent and duration of its financial dependence uh, on slavery. Documents also show the Maryland Jesuits enslaved more than 1,000 people, many who were taken to different states to construct the buildings at the new colleges that Jesuit plantations capitalized. 
the church is still profiting in some ways from lands worked by Wright Trusclair's ancestors. In 2009, it reaped $57 million from the sale of plantation land. The church pledged to raise $100 million toward an educational scholarship fund for descendants like Wright Trusclair and to charitable funds supporting black causes. But he says reparations should be paid directly to families as cash restitution. I would like to see some kind of reformation because other than a, a scholarship, because like I said, hey, everybody ain't going to college and everybody's, and there's a lot of people older now, they ain't going to go to no college. And the, that reparation, that's, and all the kids ain't going to their college. And so I, that's, that's really unfair. In a statement, a Georgetown University spokesperson said a 2016 report it issued about its history in slavery was, quote, neither the start nor the end of our work. Like so many black families, Wright Trusclair's ancestors were split apart and many never saw each other again. As a result of the 1838 plantation sale, Wright Trusclair has hundreds of cousins in Maryland that he doesn't know and about 2,000 living all over the country who are tied to that sale. For NPR News, I'm Lee Hawkins. Again, the story of Elton Wright Trusclair, a, a Minneapolis resident. I loved hearing his voice. Uh, we're sharing some of the stories, part of our North Star journey. Brant Williams is here with me, the editor uh, of, the, of the team that's been working on this. And, and what stands out to you about that piece? There's so much. There is. And, you know, I've immediately struck by the idea that there are many more Elton Wright Trust Clares in Minnesota with this mm-hmm. same history that we don't know about. But this is one man that we were able to find. And and hats off to Lee Hawkins, who this is part of a passion um, project for him. He's been studying this for a long time. And Lee, he's a Minnesota native from Maplewood, I That's believe. Right, yeah. A longtime Wall Street Journal reporter who uh, worked with us for a few months to produce some of these pieces. Right, right. And he touched on um, some of the, the issues there. Again, there's it's, it's a deep story. And we were only able to get just a, a fraction of that on the air for this. But I, I think it's it's one of those types of stories that really gets you thinking, how many more African-Americans living in Minnesota can trace their history right. back this way? What about you? How much do you know about your family history? How far can you go back? Well, I, I've been doing a lot of looking into, um, particularly on my dad's side of the family, because I was named after a great-grandfather. And, mm-hmm. that, and uh, that's a long story in itself. But I'll just tell you that um, basically, on my dad's side of the family, I came from uh, people who were um, uh, Cherokee freedmen. My great-grandmother, a woman named Jenny Van, was a Cherokee freedman, and she's the one who married my great-grandfather, who I'm named after. Clem John Brandt was his name. And so my history is one of where I'm looking at, if people are not familiar with who the Cherokee freedmen are, these were African-Americans who were enslaved by Cherokee um, people and were part of the... the there were the five tribes that were brought that were basically expelled from the eastern part of the United States, led on the Trail of Tears, and they took with them some African slaves, um, enslaved Africans. And my people are part of that. So much we don't know about uh, so our much. history of the state and even our families. Once again, today, we are sharing a few of the stories that are part of our North Star Journey Project. It's a celebration of communities in Minnesota and the champions who are doing the work that we should be bringing a voice to on the radio. We hope these reports bring some new understanding of our state and how we arrived at where we are today. Now, this next piece is about the legacy of Anthony Brutus Cassius. 
In the 1940s, he was the first black man to get a liquor license in the city of Minneapolis. And with that license, he created safe social places for black people. We're going to listen to this documentary by writer Mecca Boss in a second. But first, Brand, tell us why you wanted to share this story with our listeners. And I haven't heard this uh, story. Okay, before. well, this is um, this is a great story in that it connects. It it follows the the, the uh, what we're trying been trying to do with North Star Journey all along. It connects the past to the present. It shows mm-hmm. how the the legacy of this pioneer has inspired uh, this present generation of black visionaries and entrepreneurs. And like you, I had not, before I heard um, Mecca's story, I had not heard of Anthony Brutus Cassius. And so um, many of you may have not either. And so you're in for a treat. Let's listen to this North Star Journey report. For decades, the Dreamland Cafe in South Minneapolis was often the place to be. Up and fly right. When Nat King Cole came to town Straighten in the 1940s, right. he played the Dreamland. Up and fly right. cool Cassius down, was just 13 when he arrived in Minnesota in 1922. He came in from Oklahoma, put on a train by his father just months after the Tulsa Race Massacre destroyed much of the city's vibrant and prosperous black community. On his first night in St. Paul, he got a porter job at the Merchant Hotel, and slept on a mattress in the basement. This remained his home until he graduated from Central High School. In his 70s, Cassius recorded an oral history for the Minnesota Historical Society. This was a prejudiced town, St. Paul, Minneapolis. About the only things you could do was go to school. There was no prejudice in the school system because it wasn't enough to constitute a threat. The class I graduated in was 1,200, and there was only three colored in the old school. Because there were a few other jobs open to black men, he began working in hotels as a waiter. He became an organizer, forming the first all-black waiters' union. Then he began working for that liquor license, owning and operating three bars for almost five decades. Even though Cassius's bars were some of the first and most consistent integrated spaces in Minneapolis, he opened them for a specific reason. He wanted to give black people a place to be, to socialize, to conspire, and to dream. And we formed what was known as the Minnesota Club. There was about eight of us. We met once a month in Foster's Sweet Shop on 6th and Lindale. We met in the back. And all they wanted us to do was, if we met there, was to buy a dish of ice cream. (laughs) In the 1940s, this was a radical act. Black people organizing for civil rights. And this was how they got the safe space to do it. The shell of the old Dreamland Cafe, Cassius's first bar, stands on 38th Street in the old south side of Minneapolis. Once a thriving black community, cars noisily speed by the dilapidated intersection. But there's a new dream unfolding at the space. Unlike Cassius's original vision, it's a dream with a purpose. It's not just the Dreamland Cafe development, it's Dreamland on 38th. It is actually a revitalization of this entire community as an African-American legacy community. Anthony Taylor is co-founder of the Cultural Wellness Center. It's a Minneapolis-based social justice organization with a mission to support the idea that active living and green space are crucial to the well-being of black people. Fortunately or unfortunately, the murder of George Floyd anchored that for us. So we are now three blocks from there. So what we see is a connection between this development, what will emerge at 38th in Chicago, and we really see that as something that will anchor this as a destination for human rights, social justice fighters from all over the world. 
Like Cassius's dreamland, the new dreamland on 38th will be a place for black people to eat, drink, and relax together. We're saying social right now, but again, you know, I, even in my head, substitute safe. Spaces that a community know are safe for them to be themselves, that are anchored in their own renewal and regeneration. And really, there's a challenge around that for for black people. This seems a dangerous moment in American history, particularly if you're a person of color. Recent mass shootings have been identified as racially motivated hate crimes including the May 14th killing of 10 black people in Buffalo, New York. Safe spaces for black people seem as crucial as they've ever been. There is an energetic cost of being black and white dominant spaces all the time. So for us to create spaces like that that are available for us, you know, it's really critical. The exclusion of black people from public spaces is part of America's fabric. Taylor says when young black people are allowed to congregate, they start to look outward and organize themselves. He says when you're creating spaces where black people feel emotionally safe, you can imagine a future that includes you. There is a new generation of black-owned space in Minneapolis. Jean Sanguma is part of a collective of 20-something best friends who came together over a common bond, having a good time. We can provide fun and safe. (laughs) And safety. And then we kind of looked upon each other and we're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, Let's come up with something. Let's do it. Something ended up being Ty's Lounge, the three-story venue on the Nicollet Mall in the heart of downtown Minneapolis. You can eat, you can drink, and you can dance. But you can also grab a quiet table with friends and talk into the night. It's like an anti-nightclub that still manages to operate with nightlife and good times at the forefront. It's a community. You come to Ty's, you feel welcome. Um, We wanted to provide a safe space for all people to come together and just... Enjoy. It's an echo of what Cassius wanted to build. As a young person, I gravitated to Palmer's Bar on the west bank of Minneapolis. The dive bar institution has a rough-and-tumble facade and reputation, but I immediately found that it was one of the most welcoming spaces I had ever been to. Tony Zaccardi has owned Palmer's for four years. Palmer's, to me, it's black, white, gay, straight, trans, left, right, rich, poor... Everyone was welcome until you're a a hole. But there's something else about Tony. He's a black man, and his ownership adds another layer of meaning to the already storied place. He thinks about Cassius and his legacy. I think he'd be still be disappointed as hell at, at black bar ownership and black representation in bars. Restaurants a little better, still not at all where it could or should be. But I think he'd be proud of me. I almost just started tearing up when I said that. I approach a group of other black patrons. Tony says one of them is in every day. I ask what it is about Palmer's that keeps them coming back. A cat could hang out with a dog here and nobody would pay attention to it. And you know, we all family for real. We love each other in Palmer's. I've been coming here about maybe about six months now. We have a ball. Black people feeling comfortable, laid back, peaceful, and having a ball. It's a much taller order than it should be in America, as Cassius attested to all those years ago. These things run deep. Tony Zaccardi tells a story of recently being in Mortimer's. It's another South Minneapolis institution. As he chatted with the owner and a friend, someone walked in wearing a Palmer's Bar t-shirt. And she said, Palmer's? I haven't been there in years, but I heard a brother owns it. And so he went, yeah. The guy standing right next to you is the guy that owns it. Me. And she started bawling. And then I started bawling. And I was like, okay. This is actually something that's pretty special. That's because still, in 2022, 
Black people cannot take safe social space for granted. Places like Palmer's and people like Tony Zaccardi are providing a service that goes far beyond pouring a drink. And Cassius would be proud. Some 80 years after opening the Dreamland Bar and Cafe, these spaces are his legacy. But I think he would be prouder if we were able to drop the word safe from social space. For NPR News, I'm Mecca Boss. There you have it, another story from our North Star Journey a series of reports uh, about the history and the culture of our state. Uh, that piece about the legacy of Anthony Brutus Cassius. And uh, I enjoyed so so much about that. There's yeah. some great lines in there. I loved hearing like, uh, yeah, a place where cats and dogs could even hang out. That's um, right. And so as, as you listen to this, uh, that report again, um, Brant, um, what do you think about it? how How important is it to be able to find safe social spaces? I think a lot of folks like, well, well why wouldn't a space be safe? Right. I, and that's something that I've, you know, in for years, not only just as growing up black here in Minnesota, but just like as part of the reporting that I've been doing and in, in talking with different people about what it feels like to be somewhere it's like you you know if you talk out a turn or um agitate somebody in a certain way that all it takes is i mean to the situation to turn dangerous is somebody could call in the law enforcement officer if they feel like you're talking too loud you and your friends are laughing too loud that's something i've heard so much from you know um talking with many black folks over the years about, you know, this, why they don't feel like there are some places that are meant that they feel comfortable in Um, because they know they, they have this feeling that's like, look, all you have to do is, you know, you um, again, you get a little bit too jubilant or you're, you're, you're razzing a friend of yours. Somebody might think you're trying to fight, you know, it's like, that's, that is a still something that, that black folks constantly think about and spaces like these, you know, Palmer's and, you know, you think of Dreamland and uh, places where um, black folks were able to just be their full entire, you know, authentic selves and not have to worry about, you know, it's just like you get up and you yell at your friend across the room. That's not a threat. That's not mm-hmm. something that anybody should be concerned about. Or call him or her a name. Exactly. Right. right? It's a term of endearment, mm-hmm. you know, right. so. I think it's cool. I mean, I think of many places that I've driven by many times uh, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, but I, I don't know the full story or the history. And this is sort of what uh, these stories get out. Like, what's the story of right. a generation ago, uh, ago? What was happening there then and what's happening now? Yeah, I grew up in, as a matter of fact, I grew up not far from this 38th Street um, original, original building for Dreamland. I grew up mm-hmm. in, over in the south side uh, near 44th and 3rd along Old 4th Avenue. And... Um, yeah, this was just a building I'd see there. It was across from the old Crown Barber Shop up on 38th and um, 4th Street. And there are a lot of businesses around that. You know, as a young black man growing up, I did not know these were black-owned businesses. As a talk show host, I often say, uh, you know, my team and I, we just get the conversation started. We we start a conversation. And then like our goal is to, you know, encourage people to, you know, have your own conversations and maybe do, you know, your own research and, and dig a little deeper and find out more about something that interests you. And I see these stories definitely doing that. Oh, for sure. That's right. kind of the intent. And uh, what do you think is next? Or can you tell us what might be coming ahead in North Star Journey or some, some ideas that reporters have shared with you that they'd like to pursue? Oh, sure. We've got a lot of stuff that we're, you know, kind of in the pipe uh, pipeline for this um, this ongoing uh, North Star Journey project. I mean, 
and I can just say we are going to revisit the community of, of Hastings, Minnesota and, and digging deeper into the, the history of the black communities there. In Hastings? We've, in Hastings, Minnesota. Yes, okay. yes. We've we've done some reporting. Um, my colleague Sarah Tamer has been down there um, a couple times to speak with uh, members of the community. There was a, a prominent black church there that burned back in uh, 19, I think it was early 1900s. Um, members of that black community had scattered after that. And mm-hmm. uh, because it was it was an arson fire, but there are still black folks living in our, in Hastings, and so we're going to revisit that community and talk about the past and present there. Again, this hour we're showcasing some of the work of North Star Journey, part of of uh, you know one of the many things that we do here at NPR News as we uh, seek to to educate everyone about our state. Next, we have an interview with Gary Hines, who is the director of the musical group Sounds of Blackness. Yeah, we've been talking about uh, digging into African-American history in Minnesota as part of NPR's North Star Journey. And this is a project that brings attention to the champions who are doing the work worthy of attention. The next person we're going to hear from is one of the first people, Brant, that I met when I moved to Minnesota nearly 30 years ago. His name is Gary Hines, and he is the longtime director of the Grammy Award-winning Sounds of Blackness. Um, Sounds of Blackness, their members sing about culture and the history of African Americans all over the world. This group was founded at McAllister College in St. Paul more than 50 years ago, and they are still going strong. Gary Hines sat down with me For an interview, we Mm -hmm. had a whole show with him. We listened to music and talked about the lyrics. But he also sat down with American Public Media correspondent Lee Hawkins uh, this past July. Lee, again, a a native Minnesotan himself. And they talked about how the group combined music and social activism when Hines took over as director in 1971. Social consciousness and and, and activity uh, as students and particularly as, as black students was so uh, such the norm that it was never a question of if you were part of the movement. The only question might be which part of the movement or how many parts of the movement were you in. Because like you say, there was, you know, the black uh, uh, power movement um, and, and, and civil rights, human rights, uh, the women's movement, Vietnam, the ecology, um, all of that was there. Um, and, and so uh, we were all part of the and and uh, the other reason I'm so glad you asked that question is, uh, and and I'm going to fast forward uh, to the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. uh, when Sounds of Blackness came out with "Sick and Tired," the words of Fannie Lou Hamer. And 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 black radio was looking for us at that time, uh, and because I, I I was told this by a lot of pre a PDs program directors across the country, they wanted Sounds of Blackness to come out with another optimistic, a happy song, and that's just not how God led us. There was too much uh, righteous indignation and anger that needed to be expressed, and so that's why we came out with Sick and Tired. And for them, uh, those radio stations. And I, I get it. it. They thought it was an aberration for Sounds of Blackness to do protests and social justice music. Yeah. When, But we, we let them know, as I know you know, no, no, that's our roots and foundation. We began in, in, in conscious music. And so it, it was just uh, a continuation of that for us. And that's really powerful because I can remember having a conversation with you online where you talked about the song Reparation. Yes. And there was some initial, well, a, a long protracted um, kind of resistance towards yes. that from black radio yes. and radio stations <laughs> that were intimidated by the concept and not wanting to ex- to upset the, the white 
owners. Right. Right. Let's just put yeah, it out there. What, right. Yeah, that, call it what it I is. remember that's what you said. And it really was profound to me. And here's why. When you look at the things that radio stations do play, <laughs> come on now, that are not considered controversial, right? Right, the N word, the denigration of our women, of women, right? Yes, um, and all kinds of things like that that are not considered to be fighting words. That a discussion about reparations would be fighting words, and the the, the irony is just uh, staggering. What do you? I mean, of course, this is. This is a business. Mm-hmm. This is your life's work. And this is the kind of music that you want to do. What does that mean for you as a musician? What it means for us, uh, Brother Lee, as Sounds of Blackness, is uh, to continue, uh, again, uh, with the, the admonition of Brother Mahmoud El-Khadi to, to be um, an institu- a cultural institution, a, a musical speaking voice of and for a black America. Uh, and, and we bring black music to all people, but, but unapologetically from our frame of reference. And, and so I tell, uh, up, uh, coming and, 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 and new and younger artists all the time to not only to yourself be true, but to be clear about who you are and what you're about. Because, you know, the industry will invariably try to change that uh, if you let them kind of thing. And uh, that's just never the case with Sounds of Blackness. Uh, uh, we are who we are. And, and uh, again, um, proudly and unapologetically. And that was Gary Hines speaking with American Public Media correspondent Lee Hawkins this past July. One of the reports in our North Star Journey uh, Project series of reports looking at the history and the culture of our state, uplifting and amplifying voices of people that maybe you never heard of or you haven't heard right. interviews with them. And, and, and here they are all together, a great collection. And Brandt, um, as, as you were thinking about uh, choosing, and we just shared three of these stories uh, today. Why did you want to share that interview with Gary Hines? So this is... One, an example of Gary Hines is, is one of these uh, treasures, basically. I mean, he's a, a, a bridge between um, the past and the present and going ahead into the future of our of black communities here. Um, he can, you know, he's got all this musical knowledge. Um, I listened to that full interview with him and Lee, which goes on for a while, and they go deep into some of the early musical um bands and acts and figures in Minnesota that most people probably never heard of, but mm-hmm. played an instrumental role in getting from um, from the early jazz pioneers and um, to the Minneapolis Sound, to Jam and Lewis and Prince and all these folks. There is a link there, and mm-hmm. Gary Hines is a part of that link. He's a historian, a great speaker, right. an educator. Yeah. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, I love hearing Fascinating. from him. And so, um, on our website, uh, nprnews.org, you can, you it, you know on the homepage, uh, you'll see a big button that says North Star Journey, and it has the collection of just dozens of stories uh, like this and uh, others that we weren't able to play today, Brant, that you just want to note that folks can, could find and would maybe really enjoy. Oh yeah, there are so many, um, and I should I would be remiss if I didn't mention too that the the work of our uh, Greater Minnesota team as well. A mm-hmm. team of reporters outside of the metro area who put together a lot of great stories on communities outside of the the metro area, and they include a lot on um, our indigenous communities throughout n- northern Minnesota and other parts of Minnesota. So there's just so much there, and I think people would maybe be surprised um, at 
these what's going on in, in historically and how that is linked to the present of uh, these communities now, how they are uh, shaping their own futures. And that's really part of, again, of what we're trying to do with North Star Journey is to show how these people are active in, in making their realities. And a personal question for you. Uh, you spent um, decades, I want to say more than 20 years, on the, on the streets as a reporter covering mm-hmm. uh, specifically the city of Minneapolis uh, brand. How are you enjoying being an editor now and, and sort of supervising a group, a team of reporters? Oh, this is great. I mean, um, you know, I've gotten to, the, you know, as we mentioned, I'm, I'm 55 and I'm at a point in my life where I figure, you know, I've probably learned a few things that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, I can do that when I'm speaking with reporters and we're looking at stories to cover. I get a chance to help shape some of these stories where they go um, and kind of um, help provide some context um, because, you know, a lot of times we're story idea may come up and it's like, oh, actually, we did cover this some years ago. And here's a little context here, which might help you um, move the story forward. Well, you are a valuable member of the team, a great resource, and Thank you. you've always been a good friend to me, even when we were competing uh, out on the right. streets in different right. organizations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I want to uh, take a moment, too. So we mentioned where you can find the North Star Journey reports. Go to nprnews.org, and you'll see that North Star Journey button on the homepage. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.